Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. My name is Melissa Boswell. And I'm Hannah O'Day, and we're PhD students at Stanford University. This podcast is brought to you by the International Society of Biomechanics. It's, it's time, time for, for Boom. Welcome to Boom. We have Biomechanics on Our Minds. Boom. 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 Hi, everyone. I'm Hannah. I'm Melissa. And welcome back to Biomechanics on Our Minds. We have a really exciting interview today with Dr. Timothy Hewitt and Dr. Kate Webster, who are both really awesome biomechanists and are working in the space of ACL injury and trying to figure out what are the risk factors there, what role the brain plays, and what are some biomechanical symptoms that can actually predict this risk, as well as some neuromuscular and psychological rehab techniques in order to mitigate the risk of a second injury or in order to speed up recovery and return to sport after ACL injury. So we have a really exciting interview with them. Yeah, yeah, it was really fun to talk with Tim and Kate together because usually uh, she's in Australia, I think. Yeah. And he is in the U.S. and now she's over in the U.S. So we emailed Tim to talk to him and he was like, well, Kate's actually here with me. So why don't we all just hop on together? Um, yeah, it was really exciting to to see their collaboration and kind of feel them build off each other as these two experts in the field. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But before the interview, we'll do a bit of boom. A recent article published in the Journal of Biomechanics by Cole Simpson, Kara Welker, and other researchers here at Stanford showed that if you actually connect the legs of a runner with a spring, so basically a rubber band tied between the person's ankles, it, you can actually improve the runner's running economy. So they showed that this spring, or what they call an exotendon, connecting the legs of the runner, reduces the energy required for running by about 6.4%. So that's measured in metabolic cost. And it does so through this complex mechanism that actually provides savings beyond those associated with leg swing. So the theory is that with this exotendon, you're actually storing some of the energy lost when you're stretching your legs out in the swing phase of running and then it's stored in the elastic in order to then like sort of pull your legs back in together right. as they, they come back together. Okay, cool. So when you take a step, it stretches the rubber band, then it pulls your legs back together as you're taking the next step. As you're step. taking the next step, exactly. Did you did you ever ha where try this? <laughs> yeah, I did, I did get to try it and it was really fun. I think that everyone was surprised that people didn't fall as much as they yeah, thought. Yeah, because they I feel like I would fall. So I already, like, I feel like I trip over my own feet already. Would it, like, bring your feet together and make you trip over them? Or does it really only, like, help with the, like, frontal So they played a lot motion? with the stiffness of the spring or this exotendon mm -hmm. to figure out what was sort of optimal. If it was really stiff, they found out that it was actually really hard to run with because it was almost like you bound your legs together at a really short distance. You can imagine yeah. that. So they played with, yeah, the length and the stiffness of the spring in order to figure out what was sort of optimal. And they found a device that was able to help people um, mm -hmm. to run faster. I think someone actually even ran like a five minute something mile. Was that you? No, that was not me. <laughs> I 
on so that test. <laughs> did they say whether um, the optimal stiffness was different for each person? So I think they may have ran, I think in the paper it says that they ran an optimization for in a different like sort of pilot run, but mm-hmm. they, I don't think they include the results of that. Okay. Um, and in that, I'm, my guess is that it was different for other people, but in the study they actually published, I think they, they, they did the have different, they did have different parameters scaled. Like they had, I think the length and stiffness were scaled based on different people, but um, I see. The way it was scaled was the same for each person versus in the optimization. I think you could have very different. Okay, um, interesting. So they found some some way to scale those based on on the just on like the height characteristics of the exactly. person. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah that's cool. Um, and I think the beauty of this is that it's just so simple, right? right. Like just tying a rubber band between your legs, and <laughs> you're like, I guess sometimes. We've talked about this before, like where you think of something simple, but you're like, oh, you know, it's just like too simple to actually exactly try work, or work. Yeah. And and then but I love that that they did this and and it did work. And it's yeah, it's really elegant. Yeah. Yeah. And to be able to have that much savings and just from, again, a device that requires no external energy mm-hmm. outside of the human and um yeah, I think it's, it's interesting really awesome. too. Like, I wonder if it would do the opposite if you're walking because you don't have like like that speed to help you stretch it, or mm-hmm. if like in walking it would also help. It would, yeah. I wonder. I, don't know. I wonder if you don't get enough, yeah, that like because you have a stance phase in walk, like yeah, or, sorry, a double support phase that might get weird what if you're like clipped into your bike and then like you push down on the rubber band and then it like springs it back up the other way (laughs) that would be frightening i would literally be so scared i'm just trying to think of all the different activities that you could use like like, skipping or like a volleyball swing you like pull your arm up and then just like smack it (laughs) that wouldn't make any sense it'd be like yeah (laughs) but it's fun to think about a slingshot mechanism to any like (laughs) Uh, yeah i was like saying so that this you know they found one that gave someone savings but it'd be really cool like if they could figure out one that's like just makes it harder to run right and then it could be an exercise like people run with yeah and stuff. that's true but that that's cool. maybe in the future yeah i like that idea although i feel like you could just yeah I don't know. It'd just be hard. I just feel like I would just trip and fall if it was just safe. <laughs> that's, I think that's the thing. You've got to watch out for danger. Mm-hmm. And Cool. Well, that was a cool study. Thanks for sharing. And now we'll go into our interview. So today on Boom, we're talking with Dr. Tim Hewitt, who is a biomechanics research consultant as well as Dr. Kate Webster, who is a professor in the College of Science, Health, and Engineering and the director of the Sport Exercise and Rehabilitation Research Focus Area at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia. Thank you for talking with us today. Yeah, welcome to Boom. It's our pleasure to be with you, Hannah and Melissa. Yes, thanks for having us. So we actually first start off with more of a fun question uh, to get the episode going. So we typically like to ask when you first when did you first know that you wanted to be a biomechanist? I actually knew second grade. I have to admit, I actually stole the book from the library and I still own it. <laughs> but it was 
it was a book on biomechanics and I read it and I was just completely, I've read that book. I can't tell you how many times, uh, just enthralled with it. I, I knew from that time that I was going to be a scientist and a, a biomechanist and it's what I've done for the rest of my life. It's, it's actually called biomechanics <laughs> and it was, it, it was, it was, you know, it, it like a elementary school level and I was just blown away by it. It had amazing illustrations and it incorporated sports into it, which was a big interest of mine. So that's why I've gone on to do, I'm, I'm actually trained as a, as both a biophysicist and a physiologist. So not a straight line biomechanist, but doing the work incorporating into sports and what i'm most what i most love about biomechanics is it can be directly applied in so many different ways so taking science and mathematics applying them to the real world and in our in our real world today what we do has what's really rewarding is what we do now is even more and more useful and more and more more applicable in society is especially as it relates to sports and rehabilitation. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I'm a little bit of a different story. I came to biomechanics much later on and that's not my primary training at all. But I, I took up a postdoc position in many years ago at La Trobe University and we just had a new biomechanics lab built that was a real state-of-the-art lab. It's 40 metres in length, 10 metres in width over two storeys and at that time it wasn't being um, fully utilised. So the facility was offered to me and we were doing a whole lot of research post-ACL reconstruction and at the time there'd been you know, a lot of Tim's work in the injury prevention area but not so much following reconstruction. We're going back almost 20 years now. And it was just when I first saw the, the 3D motion analysis computer recordings, I was just completely blown away and realised that we could get a much more detailed understanding of what was going on at the needs of our patients if we were to use such um, technology. Wow. That's, those are really awesome stories. And I love hearing uh, when people answer this question because you can really hear their sort of passion come out. And um, a lot of people, very few people, Tim, have your experience of just knowing that they wanted to be <laughs> in this space and then going for it. Most people sort of come about it in like a little bit more of a roundabout way or um, sort of, yeah, more more closer to case experience. But um, that's that's really great that both of you uh, were able to share that with us. So thank thank you. So um, yeah, I certainly had a very steep learning curve in the early days. <laughs> I bet. Yeah, I yeah, I think we both, Melissa and I, understand that in uh, transitioning to different things or different projects. Even you just you just really have to dive deep and and just go for that curve. <laughs> <laughs> Can you both give a kind of a brief summary of your current research? I'm curious. I know that you both study very similar fields, but then after like kind of what you're working on together, what's um, because like, people can't tell from this, but you're actually uh, Kate's visiting Tim. That's correct. That's right. So we, as, as with our careers, we came at this from very different angles. So, I'm a biophysicist, physiologist who 
has have been I've been looking at the effector, the downstream, the symptoms. So I got interested in ACL injuries, especially in in girls and women back in or in the early 90s. And we did some of the first studies showing that girls and women are two to 10 times more likely to tear their ACLs. We also did some of the first studies using neuromuscular training that showed we could reduce the risk of an ACL injury between about half and two thirds. And Kate and I recently published a meta-analysis about 20 years later from those original publications showing the exact same thing, that you could reduce the risk of a primary, a first ACL injury by between half and two thirds. So I was looking at the biomechanical aspects the, the effector end of things. And then as I started doing this neuromuscular training and looking at these interventions, I started to realize, believe it or not, the brain had something to do with mm -hmm. it. So I was going from the effector back up the chain. And I'll let Kate talk about her experience, but she started at the brain and moved down toward the effector, toward the, the limb and the knee. And uh, Kate, I'll let you explain that. Yeah, um, but I guess in general, there's so many things here that we're working on. It's hard to know where to start. Uh, but depending on which way you look at which pathway, one of the things that we've been more recently discussing a lot about is we have these really amazing, sophisticated biomechanics labs, and we can find out a lot of information about our patients and athletes through those techniques, but also we work um, within clinical settings as well and how to transfer those skills and to be able to do clinical testing in biomechanics on like a vast number of, of our athletes to help both prevent first primary and secondary injuries. So where, where our collaboration has gone is we started working together, getting at this problem of secondary, tertiary, quaternary, downstream ACL injuries. So Kate and, and our lab did basically from different sides of the planet, what was really striking is we both noticed because we were both working with relatively young populations that our risk of a second ACL injury in these young kids, say people under 20 years old, was we published a study that said it was about 24%, about a quarter at one year. And at two years post, it looked to be about a third. Actually, we published 29.5%. Well, a very similar time, about that same time, it, that was a uh, Mark Paterno's work, who's, who was a PhD student of mine, I was actually scared to publish it because I knew people were going to say, well, you guys must not know how to reconstruct ACLs. I was in Cincinnati at the time uh, in Cincinnati because that's a super high rate. And and so I knew we were going to be criticized and, and we were. And then Kate and Julian Feller and, and her team in, in Melbourne, who I'll let Kate talk about Aussie rules footy and the risk there. But they published the exact same number, 29%, if you were just looking at, this, at these young athletes. And so that's where we started working together. And, and Kate came to my lab at Mayo Clinic to start collaborating. She did a sabbatical with us. And that's when we started working on this 
problem that we've been working on now for going on five years. So, Kate, I'll let you talk about what you, you did in Aussie Rules footy and the, the risk of second injuries in, in that sport and at, at that level. You know, as Tim said, we, we really realised we had a big problem with second injuries. The study he was talking about initially showed this 29% of second injury rate and that was in the, as part of a larger study where we were looking at all the risk factors for second injury. And when we realised our young kids were, were having so many of these, we expanded it and found it's even as high as 35% where we, you know, more than double the, the number of athletes. But, yes, for us, um, particularly I live in the state of Victoria, which is the home of Australian football, uh, we find that if you're under 20, 18 years of age at your first injury, 40 to 50% of the males who play Australian football go on and have a second injury. So we've got a real issue here. And that's where we really looked at the focus of helping to reduce this, not just from a biomechanical perspective, but from many different perspectives. So what Tim was introducing earlier is um, I have a psychology degree as well and I became interested, oh, again, 20-odd years ago at the number of our athletes who physically had rehabilitated really well from their injury and surgery but who just hadn't returned to their pre-injury sport despite before surgery indicating that that was a real priority for them and we really found that you know the brain does matter and the, the whole psychological readiness of an athlete just because we fix their knees straight away doesn't mean that they're, they're willing and, and ready to jump back into sport and we feel that, you know, that, that has a lot of implications for a whole lot of other things, particularly the way in which potentially you move following surgery as well. And if you lack confidence, that's going to be reflected in a number of things. So that's another area we're currently looking at a bit more closely. So from there, what we're doing is in series doing large cohort studies, trying to figure out what are the biomechanical symptoms that can predict risk of a second ACL tear or a third or a fourth ACL tear, but then go back upstream to look at psychological factors. And, and Kate and her uh, partner, Julian Feller, did the early work. They developed what's called the AS, ACL RSI, the ACL Return to Sport Index, which is a psychological scale and we just started publishing the first studies. This is with a, a shared student of ours, April McPherson, who's a biomechanics student at, and a bioengineering student at Mayo. And she went, she's gone back and forth between our labs here in, in Rochester, Minnesota and in Melbourne, Australia. And she's published some of the first data showing how connected the biomechanics are to the psychological aspects and also how important the, this mindset is, the psychology of it is to your risk of altered biomechanics, but more importantly, of altered downstream second, third, fourth injuries. We should do a, yeah, we should do a plug for this too for, for students that are listening. There are a number of fantastic uh, student exchange programs between Australia and America. So this was one by the Australian Academy of Science, but there's other equivalent ones from the American head as well that 
support students to come and do a defined, so three-month period of study overseas that uh, an amount of living um, is paid for. So it's a really good opportunity for students doing postgraduate uh, research studies to look out there to broaden their experience by doing these sorts of things. Absolutely. Really awesome. This is getting me really excited because I also really love the interface between biomechanics and and psychology. And I was wondering, so you said you use the ACLRSI to measure the psychological readiness, but I was was kind of interested how you can improve that score and like what it's actually measuring and how you think that's affecting the biome. So the ACLRSI measures sort of three aspects of psychological, I'll use psychological readiness as an umbrella term. It looks at the emotions an athlete might experience when returning to sports, so fear, anxiety, and those things. It also looks at confidence, not just two aspects of confidence. The confidence that the athlete has in their ability to perform back at their pre-injury levels, but also the confidence that they have in the knee itself, so their feeling that the knee won't give way on them, etc. And the third aspect is their appraisal of the risk of getting injured again. And whilst it looks at those three specific elements, those are so tightly bound together that they interact closely, making one sort of concept of psychological readiness. That's very cool. And so since we're a biomechanics podcast, we must also ask what are what are some of those biomechanical symptoms that you're seeing that are predictive? So, so another PhD student of mine, uh, Chris Nageli, asked that question. Actually, he and Kate got together when she was doing her sabbatical, and we had a, a lot of her ACL RSI data uh, from our cohort. I was, I was at Ohio State for a little over five years, and we tested enormous numbers of athletes there. And so we had lots of psych data and we also had lots of biomechanics data. And Chris just recently published last year a study that basically it it was sort of intuitive to him. What he said, interestingly, was it's almost like these people post ACLR have PTSD, some kind of post-traumatic stress disorder. and. We, we looked at that and basically the way that, that that mindset transfers is you get a stiffening of the joint. So your, your knee and you land with a straighter knee and you don't absorb force as well. So there's this. So that's the what we can really pick out closely is when someone is fearful and anxious what they do is when they're landing on their involved side, they really stiffen up that joint that has the reconstruction, and then they shift a lot of the load over to the opposite side. So that's a big that's a big problem too, because what occurs biomechanically then is you have a stiffening strategy, a straighter knee, and less force absorption on the involved side, which puts the graft, the, the reconstruction at risk. But then on the contralateral side, the uninvolved side, 
you have more loading, which puts that side at greater risk too. And depending on the population, you might get a significant increase in risk on the contralateral side, even more so than on, on the graft reconstructed side. So the psychology definitely directly affects the biomechanics. And that's what, that's what Chris showed in his paper that was in the American Journal of Sports Medicine just recently published last year. Wow. That's very cool. Yeah, that's really cool. And you talked about having like a range of, or these are younger athletes. Is that that's correct? Well, yeah. I mean, the mean age of an ACL injury is something around 23 years. So the bulk of your athletes are under 28. So but, but we particularly looked at those a 20, 19, 18 year olds and you're a little bit younger. And then in prior to Ohio State, we, we've been following a cohort for almost 20 years now. I was at Cincinnati Children's Hospital and we looked at kids. Our average age of that cohort is about 16 and a half. So girls, we really focused a lot of our, our work on, on women and girls and ACL injuries because they were, we found them to be at that greater risk. So girls peak out in ACL injuries at about age 16, 16 and a half. So we've done a lot of that work there. And, and what's generalizable is that they have significantly a higher risk. They show a stiffening strategy. Basically, what we showed is, is four factors, four biomechanical factors that put a young athlete at risk for a second ACL injury. The first is that instead of using their glute and hip complex to externally rotate and abduct their hip as they land and take off again, what they do is they allow the ground reaction force internally. It, cre it creates an internal net impulse, internal moment at the hip. So the hip is internally rotating and adducting. It's caving in. The knee, if you look at just the straight knee kinematic, which is more the symptom rather than the upstream, it's, it's the effector. It's, it's the, the joint that has the most motion. It has a great amount of load and that's where the tear occurs. So what you also see is this, this caving in or what we call it's a distal tibial abduction moment. So the, the moment tending to push the knee inward toward the midline. And then in addition, we, we saw a difference, especially on the reconstructed side of this hamstring to quadriceps activation. So on the non-involved side, you'd have a more quad dominant uh, neuromuscular strategy, whereas on the involved side, a more hamstring dominant, you're, you're using a quad avoidance uh, type of landing. And then also we saw that stiffening strategy at the knee. And those four biomechanical factors, we ran a receiver operating curve and it accounted for about 94% of the variability. So we could predict with very high accuracy using the biomechanics, who's at risk of a second tear, and then also relate that back to the psychology of this sort of post-traumatic stress that leads into this stiffening strategy and overloading of the contralateral limb. And by the way, in that population, the risk of a contralateral tear was significantly higher, multiple times higher than it was of the graft. Wow, that's really, that's really amazing research Thanks. that you guys have done.
So, so it, it it would seem like you're finding these these biomechanical features and psychological features that are related to re-injury. Um, is it reasonable to expect a biomechanical and psychological analyses of um, athletes in, like, say, like a high school or collegiate setting? Um, can we make it accessible? So, so it's one of the big challenges. So we we published a study that was all in all in girls and, and women based in 1999, where we demonstrated that using neuromuscular training techniques, and there are psychological aspects to that training as well. What we do is we, for example, we teach them to land light as a feather, use their hip and knee as a shock absorber. So it's a lot of visualization, psychological training techniques to land more softly, to roll their foot, to absorb force through their hip, uh, rather in, in their glute, which is the biggest muscle in the, of the body and absorb that force. So there, what we showed using these sorts of interventions that we can reduce the risk, we showed by half in all ACL injuries and by two thirds in non-contact ACL injuries. And then Kate, when one of the things she worked on in the sabbatical with our lab was where does that data sit now? And this was a, a paper we published last year in the Journal of Orthopedic Research, where she showed 20 years later, if you look at all the data that's existed in the literature, so she did a systematic review and meta-analysis of all the existing published literature, showed exactly the same thing. 50% reduced risk of an ACL injury and two-thirds uh, reduced risk of an ACL, a non-contact ACL injury in a, in a female, in a woman or a girl. But what you're getting at is even a bigger challenge, even though we've, we've known this for 20 years, and even though we've demonstrated it by the entire existent literature, that we can reduce the risk using neuromuscular psychological training techniques between by half to two-thirds, the problem is the problem hasn't gone away, and that's primarily due to institution of those interventions and compliance with those interventions. In other words, you can bring these techniques, but that doesn't necessarily mean people are going to use them. And I think that gets back to Kate's expertise of the psychological aspects and how do you, how do you bring people like coaches at, at a high school or junior high school level, athletic trainers at that level who are some of the most underpaid and overworked people, right? They, you know, the coaches all have outside jobs. How do you convince them that this is worthwhile to intervene? And, and part of that, a, a huge part of that is education. It's amazing how many people, even though this data has been out there for 20 years, it's amazing how many people have no idea whatsoever that you can reduce the risk of an ACL injury in, in youth. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing that also it's sort of like a, a time, like a, a cultural and societal thing, like that society has to be ready to hear these things. And I feel like it's just now like this sort of mindfulness and then even like meditation is coming back. I know that's not totally the same thing, but like it's just now that maybe we're starting to be ready for to hear some of these things as a society. 
Yeah, and as having really good data sources to demonstrate that this is a problem and that we do have solutions. There's a number of really excellent ACL registries around the world and also the, the Moon Group data here in the States that have really been tracking from a large population basis just how many, you know, that the ACL rates are rising, particularly in younger athletes and so on and so forth, that we really now know this is the magnitude of this problem is a really big thing that we need to do something about. And the, 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 the problem is actually growing. Kate and I just, just wrote a commentary that we're, we're trying to publish, which basically shows that, you know, one of the reasons this is such a big deal down in Australia is per capita, there are more ACLs in Australia. There, there's, uh, in the range of a hundred thousand ACL tears a year in Australia, and there's only 20 million people in Australia. So we, we have 300 plus million people. Australia has almost as many ACL. We have about 250,000, but proportionally per capita, Australia has a huge number. And a lot of that is due to, to Aussie rules football. So for example, in, in, we think of in the United States, NCAA women's soccer and basketball are the highest risk. And that's if per exposure, it, it's, it's a rate of about 0.4 per athletic exposure per a thousand athletic exposures. So if you convert that over, men's Aussie rules football is about one. So it's, it's like, two, two and a half times greater. That, that's how high the risk is because what you basically are doing in Aussie Rose football is recapitulating the ACL injury mechanism. The athlete goes high in the air, their trunk gets perturbed, their trunk moves over and their center of mass moves lateral, their hip and knee joint caves, the hip and knee in and the ACL ruptures. Now, just a couple years ago now, they'll, they'll be in their third season, women's Aussie Rose football has begun and the, the numbers have just exploded. And the problem is with the lack of these interventions is what you see is a number around eight. So it's a, it's eight times higher than men. And we're talking maybe 20 times higher than women's basketball and, and soccer. So huge problem. And this is why awareness is an education and utilization of these interventions is so key because this is a huge problem and something needs to be done about it. And that's why we're happy to be talking with you today to get the word out about you actually can measure and perhaps alter the psychology. We know you can measure neuro and, and alter neuromuscular control and downstream biomechanics. And we know from the epidemiology studies we and others have done that you can reduce the risk between half and two thirds, but people have to know about it and it has to be instituted. Yeah, we really appreciate you talking with us because I think, like you said, that's really important just to just to spread that knowledge. And, and a lot of what you said, it seems like can be applied to both like preventing ACL injuries in the first place and then also preventing re-injury. As you said, I mean, we, we want our kids to play sport and sport's a really important part, not just kids, kids and adults alike. Um, sport is a really important part of our everyday life, but we need to be able to do it safely. 
and that's what we're really focused on the intervention and the education here. And really, that the first ACL injury can be devastating. You're you're out of your sport for, on average, you know, people used to think it was six months. It's not six months. It's a year to two years. And we've we've published papers on that data. And then, so you you go through this grueling, you know, painful surgery, post op rehabilitation, return to sport, grueling rehab. And then get back on the field and Kate and I can tell you, give you many, many examples. They go back, the, the quicker, the more quickly they go back, the more quick the, the re-tear occurs. It can happen in just a game or a few games, which it happens, that happens all the time. And that second ACL rupture is just devastating because now you know before you were unaware what you were going to have to go through, the time it was going to take, the surgery, the grueling rehab. Now you're aware of it. And I had in my lab at one time six people with two ACL tears in the lab because after you experience that, you want to do everything you can from preventing yourself and anyone else uh, from ever having to undergo such a, a devastating result as that. Uh, so I really enjoyed talking with both of you together. I also, I listened to a previous podcast that seemed like that you were talking and Kate was uh, more or less like interviewing Tim on some questions and you agreed a lot on a lot of the questions you discussed. And my question is if there's any like research question that you maybe disagree on or you have like conflicting views on. So what the one that we talk probably the most about is grafts. Is that what you were Yes, uh, absolutely. We we disagree on this one we constantly. Really, we, it's a tricky it's a tricky question actually, and it's something that I don't think a lot of people disagree on. And we're still that's when we heavily debate. We're still debating. And when you said earlier about what you know new biomechanics studies etc., we're doing one that we're currently doing in Melbourne is looking at a group of athletes who have had ACL reconstruction done with a quadriceps tendon. Um, traditionally, hamstring and patellar tendon are the two sources that have been used, and certainly our high re-injury rates in our young have predominantly been with the use of hamstring tendon grafts, so we've got a cohort who have now had quadriceps tendons, and we're going to be really interested to see if we can see any biomechanical differences using that graph source. So that's one we, we talk about a lot. And don't always... And so we debated a lot, which is, which is healthy. A, a lot of our neuromuscular and biomechanical research indicates that the posterior chain musculature, the glutes, the hamstrings, especially the medial hamstrings, are important for uh, absorbing force and controlling rotations and luxations around the knee joint. So my bias is that those medial hamstrings that people use to harvest for graft are absolutely crucial for the neuro, for neuromuscular and biomechanical control. Now, that doesn't necessarily, in the past, it, de- it didn't necessarily come out in the epidemiology, but it is coming now. It, it, it shows that the hamstrings have a risk of retear in the range of somewhere between one and three percent higher than say what a lot of people consider the gold standard the bone tendon bone graft but that's another paper we're working on to say okay a one to three percent difference 
is that clinically significant enough to be changing practice? And so I think healthy debate is good. And, and I think in, in any kind of collaborative situation, you have to challenge one another. Yeah. And it's, it's been really fun to talk to you and watch, or sorry, not watch, I guess, listen to you guys. <laughs> Well, Tim was doing some really good demonstrations. Yeah, I, I, I was. I'm, 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 I'm hyperkinetic. I was, I'm constantly moving the whole time talking to me. I'm demonstrating drop vertical jumps and hamstring activation. And the position of the But, yeah, I can't help myself. But you you just have to imagine it over the, over the uh, audio waves. <laughs> you should have set up a video just for us. <laughs> um. So I, I think we'll, um, yeah, we'll sort of take my one of our favorite questions now, um, which is, what are you excited about for the future of biomechanics? And that can be research related, that can just be the field as a whole, that can be... I think, I think the technology, you know, what we can do now is, you know, everyone's excited about wearables, you know, and I, and I think there is a lot of uh, progress made and will be made right now though what I can say about wearables is the vast majority of them are highly unreliable and completely unvalidated which is a problem but the good thing is with that kind of technology and the way it's going to advance over the next few years and also maybe more importantly the, the big data AI and the way we're going to be able to look at thousands and thousands of individuals and, and their individual biomechanics and build a picture across multiple risk stratifications that I think we're going to be able to use that data to reduce risk and enhance performance in athletes over time. Yeah, I'm going to be pretty boring in a gray too. I think the technological advances being able to implement these skills in clinical situations by looking at the increased number of athletes, the ability of being looking at things in real time too will be important. So to provide feedback, direct feedback, as well as the ability to utilize big data sets so we can answer really important questions there. I completely agree. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So if people want to learn more about what you do or follow you or follow your work, um, what would be the best place to do that? I spend a lot of time on Twitter. I have to admit I'm a bit of a Twitter troll, so watch out. I, I see myself as the defender of good science. <laughs> so if I see bad science, I, I tend to point it out. But I'm uh, – I'm – I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm Hewitt one Tim on Twitter. So, uh, feel, feel free to check me out. I'm more sporadic on Twitter. Mine's just Dr. Kat Goodstar. And, but I, if you, if you direct message me and things like that, I usually answer. So that's fine too. That's great. It's kind of incredible. The conversations that are had on Twitter now about research. Um, I actually, uh, Kate on yours too, there's a, there's a cover photo that I just really quickly wanted to ask you about. It says there is a quote that you have as your photo that says, if one does not begin with the right attitude, there is little hope for the right ending. And I really like that. And I was just wondering if, um, how that kind of fits in with both like your research or maybe, I don't know if it's more like a personal, um, quote that you find. in. 
Yeah, I think it fits in both, but it's actually that comes from a personal situation. Both my son and daughter participate in martial arts, so judo and jiu-jitsu. And one day when I was picking them up from the martial arts academy, I was sitting waiting, and that's a big sign in the room there. So that's what you see as you walk in and out of the studio. And I just went, wow, that's real. That's absolutely the right attitude for, for many things. And I took a picture of it. And as a, a former martial artist and, and power lifter myself, I can tell you I can't agree more with that sentiment yeah, as well. That's awesome. yeah. It says it all. Well, thanks again. This was really fun and we learned a lot. Yeah. And we really appreciate both of you coming on together. And um, yeah, thank you so much. The pleasure was all ours. Thank you so much, Hannah. Thank you so much, Melissa. We really appreciate your time. Yep, nice chatting with you both today. That was a really great interview with Tim and Kate. So we really appreciated them being on. And now we will jump into our research fails segment, which usually is where we're able to share some failures from research. But I think one cool thing that we did at the International Society of Biomechanics slash American Society of Biomechanics conference in Calgary was put up a question out to you guys that said, if you could change one thing about science or research, what would it be? And we had you leave your answers on sticky notes on our board. And it was really exciting to see all these different things. And I think these are the things that sort of get inspired by failures. So when we have failures or we see what's wrong, with what we're doing in science or research, we dream about what it could be. And so kind of flipping our research fails to the other side of what can we learn from our failures or shortcomings, we want to share some of these awesome ideas with you. So some of these are, so a lot of them were about funding, (laughs) but that's to be expected, you know, more money, um, more funding, but also more collaborations, which are good and this is a good episode for that as well. We had some about open publishing or open access to journal articles, which were really positive. I think in general there's a lot of like sharing sentiment on the board. So that was yeah, really exciting. Yeah, definitely more shared data sets. Uh, more translation into uh, the real world, which mm. is always super important. Yeah. I think we saw some I like the um, double-blind reviews. That's also kind of interesting. And no publication bias on positive results. Yeah, right. So, like, people actually want to hear more about failures and traditionally. the actual results, yeah, what the results are regardless of whether they're supporting the hypothesis or not. Yeah, we... And we have multiple things on here about more teamwork or more team-oriented science. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, more opportunities for research for research for young scientists, not just seniors. Mm. That's a good one. We should think of some ways to to be able to do that. Yeah, I also on see this one. I like this more user feedback. I think a lot of times we kind of do science from the bottom up. We do the science part first, and rather than going sort of top down from like what the application might be. So that would be really nice to have user feedback to do a little bit more of that and helps with the translation into real life maybe Mm -hmm. there's also a few about moco which is musculoskeletal collocation uh software right is that yep that plugs right into open sim and two people from our lab scott delps lab are actually working on this chris dembia and nick bianco 
Mm-hmm. And yeah, and they kind of they presented this at ISB ASB for the first time, and people were super excited about it. So um, you should look up Moco and all the cool things it can do. Yeah, they're a great example of an open source software that they want people to be a part of both making and implementing. So I think they also put this sticky note on here that says more code on GitHub that they want people to be sharing their code just like they're doing so that we can all sort of build together, which I think is mm-hmm. is really great. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so thank you for all of the suggestions. Definitely things to think about and it's it's fun to get these conversations going so um, we can keep these conversations going on twitter um, you can tweet at us at biomechanics oom or if you'd rather be less public about your opinions or or what you'd like to see on boom or you want to share a research fail with us you can email us at biomechanics on our minds at gmail.com and we're happy to hear from you yeah so thanks for listening to biomechanics on our minds i'm melissa And I'm Hannah. And we also wanted to thank the International Society of Biomechanics for their support of this podcast. Biomechanics off our minds. Bitter boom. Bitter boom. Bitter boom. Bitter boom.